0: So we're going to start, and as people roll in, I'll just let them into the into the uh, Zoom chat because the we tend to have a different shifts of people who join us every uh, every evening. Uh, but we don't want to wait too long and uh, run out of time. So the uh, we're going to be studying the Parashat last week, Parashat Bo, and Parashat Bo, of course, is uh, the. Culmination of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, maybe not in terms of the most dramatic aspect. The most dramatic aspect being the uh, being this coming week's parasha of the actual exodus and the crossing of Yam I think most people see that as the uh, as the most dramatic of uh, all of the scenes in Yitzhak Mitzrayim. But in terms of the most fundamental shift that takes place in the relationship between Paro. And the Jewish people And in terms of the Jewish people And the relationship with God That really takes place in Parashat Bo And uh, and we can go a step further And say that not only is the relationship Between Paro and the Jewish people changed And not only is the relationship Between the Jewish people and Paro And the Jewish people and Hashem changed But also the relationship between Hashem and Paro Changes in a fundamental way In uh, this week's Parashat Because we see a uh, something that we've never seen before which is in the beginning of the uh, in the beginning of the parasha hashem says to moshe boil pork and yakhbadti levav et lev va dav leman shiti ototai ele bekirbo." hashem says to moshe "Come to tsaparu because i have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants so that i can place these signs in his midst ulayma an tsaparu be'oznei vincha uvincha et asher talalta bemitzrayim and so you can tell in the ears Of your son and your grandson What I have done in Egypt And the signs that I placed among them And you will know that I am Hashem This is actually a very, very different And this is a nuance that people maybe don't pick up right away When they read the Torah Even they read it once, twice, maybe even many times That there are introductory uh, pronouncements That Hashem makes before individual makot Before the plagues that are... uh, that, you know, that are, that are actually brought about And that are inflicted on par'o There are these introductory pieces And this sort of uh, introduction that is given has uh, is, is very significant Because it means that the whole purpose right now Of the makot is changing Up till now I think that we interpret the makot We read the makot as an attempt To enlighten par'o To induce par'o to do the right thing To, uh, you know, to... Enable him to see the light And to make the right choice Finally after everything All of his resistance And all of his uh, All of his uh, obstructions And all of the uh, all, all of his stubbornness And all of this That finally he'll be able to see the light And he'll be able to make the right choice And free the Jewish people Listen to God Recognize God Understand that God has a plan for the Jewish people And let them go But here Hashem is introducing These makot with a very different tone He's saying, because I've already made his heart hard and I've made the heart of his servant's hard, so that I can place these miracles in his midst and so that you can tell your children and children's children about the miracles. In other words, there's no more hope really at this point that Paro is going to do teshuvah, that he's going to repent. The purpose of the miracles at this point is to make a display of the full, uh, the full extent of the power of God so that it can be told, it can be recounted from generation to generation, uh, the, the miracles that Hashem brought about in Egypt. That is the objective at this point. It's not really. There's no real hope anymore. It's like it would be to use a uh, maybe an example that's imperfect. I'm not sure if this analogy is a perfect analogy, but an analogy that comes to mind is sometimes uh, a, a person will be given a sentence, a prison sentence or some other, uh, some other uh, sentence that's handed down by a judge, not necessarily because the judge has any hope that the person is going to be rehabilitated. Maybe rehabilitation seems like it's an impossibility. Maybe at that point, you know, there doesn't seem to be much hope for the individual to learn from the error of their, you know, to learn the error of their ways and to change themselves, but in order to send a message to other people, in order to convey some kind of a, a lesson to the, uh, to the community, to the nation, to other potential criminals, uh, you know, the judge will hand down a sentence that's very harsh. Like, sometimes they'll hand down a sentence of 800 years in prison or something like that. Obviously, the person's not gonna live 800 years, but the idea is that um, to send a message about how seriously uh, the crime is taken and how seriously it's seen in the eyes of the uh, in the eyes of the court um, and similarly we know that some s- some criminals are you know have psychological issues and are psychopathic to the extent that there's no reasonable chance that being incarcerated is going to bring them uh, to any kind of repentance it could be in certain you know, unusual cases, and a lot of times it's unexpected that someone who is uh, imprisoned will in fact uh, change their ways and improve themselves. But uh, more often than not, it doesn't work so well as a rehabilitative measure, but it's really to, it's more as a deterrent so that people will not uh, make the wrong choices because they'll remember what happened to so-and-so that he ended up uh, having to deal with such harsh consequences. So. Um, In this case as well Hashem is saying that At this point There's not much hope That Paro is going to change his ways That he's going to uh, Reconsider his enslavement of the Jews But it's going to have to Instead It's instead going to be about Demonstrating the full extent of God's power For uh, the educational benefit Of the Jewish people And future generations That they will uh, tell the story to and we actually saw a glimmer of this already, even in the previous parasha. If we look back to Parashat Vaira, Hashem actually says to Moshe even then that he should say to uh, he should say to Paro ki et This is going back to to Parashat Vayira, Perek Tet, the ninth chapter, verse fifteen. Ki et va'ach that at this point I could just strike you down with a plague, with a pestilence. And I could wipe you out and just release the Jewish people that way. But it's because of this that I'm keeping you alive. In order to show you my power, and so that my name, so that you will tell my name Throughout the entire land. In other words, there was already an idea. Hashem was already saying to Paro, "I've given you really enough chances to mend your ways. I've given you enough chances to get the message. But at this point, I'm just going to demonstrate to you how far I can take this. It's not really. It's not really about anymore. Um, you know, at this point, you're just standing in the way of my freeing the Jewish people from bondage. But uh, so I'm going to use you as a uh, as a, a an instrument." to convey my message. The message is not really intended for par'o anymore. Hashem doesn't really uh, convey to par'o any serious um, expectation that he might uh, that he might change anymore, might listen anymore. He says straight out to, par- to Moshe, I have hardened the heart of par'o. He's not gonna listen to you. But you're gonna have a great story to tell future generations about what Hashem is able to do. Now, I think I mentioned before, I'm sure I've mentioned in previous classes, the big discussion The big debate About what it means uh, Hardening the heart What hardening the heart refers to There are two Basic interpretations Of what it means God hardened the heart of Paro And just to revisit that Just to put that To put the story into perspective Because everybody asks the question What does it mean That par, that uh, Hashem Hardened the heart of Paro So there are two approaches brought in the uh, in the traditional commentaries. One interpretation, I think, the simple the simple reading, when a person looks at the story and, and reads it casually, and probably the commonly understood uh, reading of the story, is that um, is that it means that Hashem didn't allow Paro free choice, that He denied Paro the ability. To make a choice on his own He hardened his heart Meaning that Hashem Stopped Paro From making the right decision And in fact That is what Maimonides says The Rambam says That Hashem actually Took away The freedom of choice Of Paro In this instance When it says et libo, That I hardened The heart of Paro It actually means That Hashem Took away Paro's ability To choose for himself Now the Rambam explains That's not something that Hashem typically does And it's never something Hashem would do As a first course of action But if a person repeatedly and wantonly Abuses the freedom of choice As a punishment for that person Hashem can sometimes remove their freedom of choice So that they have to face the consequences Of the bad course that they adopted on their own In other words It's not that Hashem from the beginning would compel a person to make a choice that was wrong. But Hashem, if a person repeatedly chooses the path that's wrong, Hashem at some point might rob them of the ability to change their ways so that they have to experience the full brunt of the impact of the choices that they made. And that is the way that the Rambam interprets the hardening of the heart of Paro that it means that he actually took away the freedom of choice of Paro at this stage and basically Paro became a puppet. Why? Not because Hashem typically does that. Hashem typically uh, leaves us to our own devices and allows us to have free will so we can be responsible for our own destiny and, uh, and, and for our own actions. But as a consequence sometimes, Hashem will take a person's freedom of choice away um, and that, is the, that itself is the punishment. In other words, the, what the Rambam clarifies is that it's not that Hashem is, then, is forcing Parot to do something and then holding him responsible for it. That would be a misunderstanding. That would be unjust. What it means is that as a punishment, when the person has already uh, chosen wrongly numerous times, Hashem might remove the, the freedom of choice so as to punish them for their actions. That's the punishment but not that the actions that they commit without free choice are held against them. It's the actions that they did before that are held against them. So that's how the Rambam, Maimonides, reads the story of Paro. He reads it as a miraculous taking away of free choice, that maybe Paro really would have exercised his free choice in the right way and would have elected to listen to Moshe Rabbeinu as these makot became more and more intense as the uh, the makot became more and more unbearable, but Hashem didn't allow him to do that, so he would have to experience the full brunt of the makot and be a lesson for future generations. That's the interpretation of the Rambam, Ramban, Nachmanides, and also some other commentaries. There are others that adopt a similar approach, Sephorno, and others who take the same uh, the same uh, interpretive. Uh, model And they say, no, it's not that free choice is taken away. Free choice, they say, is never taken away. But what was taken away was the fear of parole In other words, a person, um, there are two aspects of who you are. There's the aspect of what you really would like to do. And there's the aspect of what you think you can get away with doing. These are not necessarily the same thing. In other words, if a person removed all fear from you, Aren't there things you might consider doing that in actual reality you won't consider doing because you're too afraid? (laughs) Maybe you're too afraid to get caught doing certain things. Maybe you're too afraid of getting in trouble. You're too afraid of the consequences, the risks involved. So you won't do it. But imagine you didn't have to worry about any of those risks. What would you do then? And you didn't have any fear. What would you do then? So that, in a way, is the real you. Because whatever calculations you make based upon your fear of consequences or your fear of other people, um, that's not the real you. That's just the negotiated you. You're negotiating with the external reality to protect yourself. But if all of that fear was taken away, you might behave differently. I'm sure some of you remember the movie uh, Groundhog Day about uh, Bill Murray, where he realizes that no matter what he does, he just keeps repeating the same day again and again. And even if he tries to get killed, he just wakes up the next morning, and it's Groundhog Day, Groundhog Day again, um, over and over. And so uh, he loses his fear. In addition to, uh, um, for you know, he experiments with all kinds of uh, unusual, uh, unusual things along the way. But without any fear, how would a person act? How would a person behave without um, having to worry about the consequences? So that's what the Ramban and others who follow the Ramban's approach, that's how they understand what it means that Hashem hardened the heart of Paro. It means that Hashem gave Paro the emotional strength to not be afraid, to do what he really wanted to do and to push the fear aside. Because a person who's crippled by fear isn't really choosing what they want to do. They're choosing what they feel they have to do because they're compelled to do it. But that's not really what they'd like to do, what they would hope to do. It's only what they feel they have no choice but to do. And that's how the Ramban explains uh, the hardening of the heart. He says that it means that Hashem gave him courage. So in a way, the Rambam and the Ramban, Maimonides and Nachmanides, are almost reading the story as polar opposites because the way that that Maimonides reads it is that Paro has no free choice. He doesn't have free choice. Hashem is not allowing Paro to make the choice that he would really want to make. He has relieved him of his responsibility for his actions. He's become a pawn or a puppet. The Ramban says exactly the opposite. The Ramban says that what Hashem is doing here is allowing Paro to make the choice he really wants to make because choosing something based upon fear is not really choosing at all. It's feeling compelled or forced to act in a certain way. And so therefore, according to the Ramban, it's actually a more genuine free choice because it means that, the, that Paro was choosing what he really wanted to do. And if he really had wanted to do what was right and to do what was just, according to the Ramban, he would have been able to do it. He just wouldn't have chosen whatever he chose out of fear. Whereas according to the Rambam, even if he started to see the truth and wanted to repent at that point, it was too late for him. The sentence was already passed. That's the way that the Rambam, Maimonides, interprets it. So these are really, in my mind at least, diametrically opposed views of what it means to harden the heart, whether it is an actually an, uh, a removal of free choice or in a way it is actually an enhancement of free choice because we are not... We, we have free choice, but we don't have freedom to uh, pursue what our ideal choices would be. And that was what the Ramban says God allowed Paro to do by taking away his fear of the Makot. In any case, there's no question that the final Makot, really starting with, the, uh, with Barad, but especially the last three, are the most devastating to Egypt and the least uh, shruggable of the Makot, so to speak. Everything else... Uh, Paro could bounce back, he could rationalize, he could ignore, he could minimize it, he could spin it, but the complete destruction of the food supply with the locusts, there's nothing that could really be done. In other words, the the early makot were were annoying or inconvenient or even, you know, involved some loss of property, but not total devastation, destruction. Now we come with the ar'be in our parasha, the locusts that eat whatever was left of the crop after the hail uh, had destroyed much of it. And then you have Choshech, which is darkness, complete paralysis of the society for three days. Nobody could move, nobody could see a thing. It was a total shutdown. And then you have finally Makat Bechorot, which, of course, the killing of the firstborn in addition to the um, you know, to the emotional aspect of it, there's the whole idea of the future of Egypt now, the legacy of Egypt, um, the vision, the 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 vision of of, of, a, of a of a of a future for Egypt has now been compromised because the future leaders, the firstborn, have been removed, and uh, and the whole sense of the power that is that comes with being able to reproduce, that the ability to have children, which is represented by the firstborn, the firstborn is special not only for two reasons. One is because the firstborn has a relationship that is unique with the parents, but also because, and, and, and also has a role in the family that is unique because they usually are the successor of the parents, but also because the firstborn represents the, the ability to procreate, the ability to reproduce. It's the first time that the parents have seen an example of that ability. And so the firstborn represents the reproductive power, the ability to, uh, to transmit a part of yourself to the future, basically to perpetuate an aspect of yourself through reproduction. And that's why we consecrate the firstborn to God, because we recognize that that power, that ability to reproduce and to create comes from God and is something that should be used in the service of God. But this was something that was the opposite in Egypt. The idea of the firstborn was that the, the firstborn ensured the eternity of the great Egypt and uh, and of Egyptian culture, and the attack on that was obviously the most devastating of all because it wraps together not only the emotional and the social part, the political part. Everything at once uh, is undermined, and you see even that it says in in this coming week's parasha that the um, that the the Egyptians were so devastated. They were involved actually. They were so devastated and distracted. Not only did they did they push in in this parasha and parasha both for the Jews to leave. But it, you know, elsewhere the Torah tells us that they were busy burying their dead, and they were so involved with the mourning of their dead that they they didn't even try to resist when the Jews were leaving, or try to make it difficult for the Jews. They just let them go because they were involved in their own personal tragedies, each each family. So the um, these are devastating makot. These are makot, I think, and 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 whether you say like the Rambam or the Ramban in terms of understanding hardening of the heart, you could see why these makot would. Uh, be the kind that even someone as obstinate as Paro would have to use some practical sechel, what we call, you know, some uh, basic intelligence and realize that he was making a bad decision in resisting the message of these makot. In fact, his, his servants say in the beginning of the parasha, they say to him, when Moshe Rabbeinu says, if you don't relent and allow the Jews to go serve God, uh, locusts are going to come and eat whatever is left of the crops <coughs> in the fields and, uh, and, the, and, and, and they run out and, uh, <coughs> and the servants of Paro say to him why are you allowing this to be a trap just let them go serve their God already <speaking in Hebrew> have you not known already don't you realize that Egypt is lost what is left? We're, we're, we're barely going to survive this as it is, and you're going to allow another Makkah to strike again at our economy and basically obliterate it. How could you do that? So they bring Moshe Hanaron back, and of course, Paro tries to negotiate with them, and the negotiations fail, so the Makkah comes anyway, the plague comes anyway. And then after that, we have the Makkah choshech. The darkness, which Moshe Rabbeinu doesn't even warn Paro, because every third Makkah there's no warning, it just comes. The darkness, that, in that case, Paro calls for Moshe and Aaron to come, and he says to them, you know, fine, you can go, uh, just uh, take away this, uh, this you know, the, he wants to make sure that the, uh, the you know, that there no, the, the plague will, will, uh, will uh, you know, will be over with. He, because the Makkah Choshech, nobody could move, for three days, nobody—the the society was shut down completely. For three days, unable to see anything, and he said, "You can go, but you have to leave your animals behind." And that time, Moshe says, "No, we have to go with our animals too." So Parol says, "Okay, then forget it. You never see me again. I, and and the day that you see me, you're gonna die." That's what, those are the last words that Parol says to Moshe. And Moshe says to him, "Kendi barta, you're right. Lo osif I'm never gonna see your face again." In other words, uh, that's it. Our, uh, you know, this is going to be the final Confrontation between the two of us And of course then he informs him Moshe Rabbeinu informs Paro about Makat Bechot That's going to come, the plague of the firstborn And that at the end of this plague Your servants are going to come and beg me To leave with the Jewish people uh, Once and for all and, uh, and that indeed is what happens So in terms of understanding the Makot We realize that these Makot are the Makot That bring uh, Parot to the breaking point And either And the point of the hardening of the heart of Paro is that either without uh, divine intervention, Paro would have made the right choice at this point and therefore been the liberator of the Jews instead of it being Hashem and we wouldn't have gotten to see the full extent of the makot or that anybody in their right mind would be so scared, would be so afraid and intimidated by these makot that they would have let. The people go, and that Paro would have let the people go out of his fear, but he got a uh, Hashem gave him a an irrational type of a courage that he was not afraid of the consequences, so he was able to choose what he really wanted, which was to keep the Jews enslaved to him. Uh, That is the side of Paro. But then we have, of course, in the Torah, for the first time in in Parashat Bo, mitzvot for the Jewish people, and we've never seen mitzvot before. It's actually a really uh, momentous. Uh, Turning point in the Torah to the point that in the very first Rashi, the very first Rashi in Chumash asks, shouldn't the Torah really begin in Parashat Bo? Shouldn't it really begin where Hashem says, This month is going to be the first month for you, and uh, it will be the first of the months of the year, and you should. Have a a Pesach offering And in the future You're going to have A a holiday of Pesach This is the first time That Hashem commands The Jewish people And gives them mitzvot So shouldn't that really be The beginning of the Torah? This is what Rashi asks And of course He gives an explanation Which is very famous Why the Torah begins With Bereshit instead And so on But the point is That this is the first set Of mitzvot That God addresses To the Jewish people And it makes you think For a second You know that's true Up till now Neither Hashem nor Moshe Rabbeinu nor Aaron has requested or required anything from the Jewish people. Of course, they went and gave their message over to the Jewish people. Um, The first time it was accepted and endorsed and the Jewish people got behind it. And then the second time they didn't want anything to do with it. But they were listening. They were passive. And they, in the beginning, accepted the idea. Then when part O sort of made things worse for them... They withdrew their endorsement of Moshe and Aaron. When Moshe and Aaron came with the message again, they were listening but skeptical and didn't want to get involved. And we don't know how that may have changed over the course of the makot occurring uh, week after week as has been described in last week's parasha. And this week's parasha that I'm sure many of the Jews came around to see, hey, we're winning this actually in the end. And, and, and they definitely started listening to Moshe because Moshe tells them to go borrow gold and silver from their neighbors. Of course, this gold and silver is going to be on a permanent borrowing. It's going to be uh, on permanent loan as payment for all the servitude uh, of the hundreds of years that the Jews were in Mitzrayim. So that is the, um, you know, that, that you see there for the first time that Moshe is telling them to prepare for their journey by getting gold and silver. And the reason for the gold and the silver, why all of a sudden is Moshe Rabbeinu worried about the financial prospects of the Jewish people that he asks them to go begging for a gold and silver before they leave. So the Midrash tells us that when Hashem told Avram Avinu that his children would be enslaved in Egypt, he also, well he didn't tell them Egypt, but it would be enslaved. He also told them they would leave Berchush Gadol, they're going to leave with a lot of wealth. They're going to be, they're going to leave in a good position. Just like he promised Abraham that in leaving his home, he would nevertheless meet with wealth and fame and everything that he would need to fulfill his mission as an ambassador of God to the world. Hashem also promised Abraham that your children, they will be enslaved, but they will leave Birkhush Gadol. He said, I will judge the people that enslave them and they will leave with a great wealth. That was the promise Hashem made to Avram. But the only thing is that the Jewish people have to fulfill that promise by taking action. In fact, the Midrash says that uh, why does it say that um, Hashem said to Moshe, "Please speak to the people"? That's the language of the the pasuk. Really, na. The word na means speak now to the people. Uh, but the way that uh, that Midrash often interprets the word "daber na," please speak, as if it's a request. Because the word na can sometimes mean please. It's used that way in very formal Hebrew today. Na Please sit down. Um, but in, in Tanakh, usually na means now. Speak now. But the rabbis interpret it also midrashically as da berna. Please speak to them. Meaning, go. Because the Jewish people might say, well, what do we need to get involved in this? Borrowing things from our neighbors and all that. We don't want to do that. It's awkward. Right? So Rashi says, he quotes the midrash that he asks Moshe, please ask them to go and and request from their neighbors gold and silver because otherwise Avram Avinu will say, I fulfilled my promise that I was going to have the Jewish people enslaved, but I didn't fulfill the promise that they were going to come out with a lot of wealth. And in other words, I didn't completely fulfill the promise, only the bad, not the good. They have to take the initiative to make it happen by going and requesting the gold and silver. So that they actually leave Berchushkatol. They have to be partners with Hashem in making sure that this promise is fulfilled. But the idea is that the purpose of the enslavement was to bring a nation out of Egypt that would be able to stand on its own two feet, be independent, and be now. Uh, the uh, the heirs to the mission of Abraham Avinu, spreading knowledge of God in the world, they are going to need the wherewithal to do that, and they're going to uh, uh, they need to leave with this with this wealth. They can't just escape, run away from Egypt with uh, empty-handed. So therefore, Hashem says, "Please speak to them, meaning ask them of their own volition to go and to request gold and silver from their neighbors." Uh, on the pretense that it's a loan Really it's going to be a payment For their enslavement to uh, uh, to Egypt For all those years And when they leave That way they won't leave empty handed Just as I promised Avraham Avinu That's the idea That they should fulfill that promise Through their action Of requesting the gold and silver So they're so to speak Fulfilling Hashem's promise for him But it had to be done Through human action So that was the first thing That Moshe Rabbeinu tells them But then really the first mitzvah He gives them Is the mitzvah of Korban Pesach and this is where really the Torah begins, so to speak. The Jewish people have their own calendar now. They have their own sense of identity as a nation. And they're, And this Korban Pesach is going to be a defining moment for them. They have to take action in order to be redeemed. They have to fulfill mitzvot in order to be redeemed. You cannot passively be saved. This is the key in the story of Parashat Bo and the key of the Exodus. That to a certain extent, you're a, par- you're a passive observer. To a certain extent, you're learning from observing the makot, what you can learn from them about God and about yourself and about how Hashem runs the world and so on. That is definitely an aspect of the educational uh, objective of the experience of the Exodus. But at the end of the day, you need to take initiative. You need to say, I really stand behind this. I really mean it. I'm going to uh, behave in a way that demonstrates that these are my values and my convictions. In, unless you do that, you'll never really be redeemed. Redemption comes from the implementation of the ideals and the, and the actual application of the ideals to life. That's why the rabbis say, The Jewish people are only saved, they are only redeemed with repentance. Repentance means if they take the initiative to apply the values and principles of Judaism to their lives. Otherwise, the, uh, the, the redemption cannot happen. We are not rocks. We are not inanimate objects that can be moved around. We aren't um, unthinking or uh, beings that are just manipulated by God. At the end of the day, we need to make correct choices in order to bring about redemption. Sometimes you have to be a student, sometimes you have to be a listener, sometimes you have to be absorbing certain things in order to become who you are. But at the end of the day, you need to act and redemption comes through action, not through passive uh, waiting around. And that we see from the parasha here, that after everything is said and done, after the final Makkah is about to come to fruition, after uh, all of the uh, the entire setup, um, the entire process of the makot, all of the badgering and pressuring of Paro, at the end of the day, even with that, if the Jewish people want to leave Mitzrayim, they need to take action, they need to do something to show that they're worthy and to cause that redemption To uh, be actualized, and that's why you know the idea of like let's say a common idea in the Jewish people today is waiting for Mashiach. We're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting for Mashiach. It doesn't say anywhere to wait for uh, for the Mashiach. It it doesn't say that anywhere. It says that the Jewish people have to have to repent and have to improve themselves, make themselves worthy of the Mashiach coming, and uh, and and become a redeemed people that can be uh, a proper. Uh, you know, can can ha- be the proper material for any kind of Mashiach to lead them. They have to do what's necessary first for that to happen. The redemption comes first and foremost from our choices, our actions, uh, and the way that we that, that we think and live. It doesn't come from being a passive object that God shapes like a piece of clay. That's not the way that redemption, you know, actually will operate. So oftentimes people say, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting for Mashiach, I'm waiting for this, I'm waiting for that. Passive waiting doesn't work. It happens all the time. You hear people say it all the time. Oh, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. Uh, how many people say... Uh, they, uh, you know, you'll talk about Israel and they'll say oh yeah we're going to go to Israel one day the Mashiach is going to come we're going to go the Mashiach is going to come we're going to go Well, when the Mashiach comes we're going to do this when the Mashiach comes we're going to do that but they don't realize that Um, the actual redemption has to come from the side of the people making moves, not from waiting for someone else. If you wait for someone, if you play chicken with the Mashiach and you're just waiting for him to make a move and he's waiting for you to make a move, it doesn't work. Uh, There has to be a, uh, there has to be redemptive um, uh, movement on behalf of the people. And that is what we see here. Now, obviously, the redemptive movement here occurred before Makat Bechorot because when Moshe Rabbeinu says to Paro, At midnight tonight, the Makkah is going to come. That means that when Moshe was talking to Par'o, that was the 14th of Nisan already. Because he was saying that night, the 15th of Nisan, is going to be Makat Bechorot, the plague of the firstborn. And that day, the Jewish people were going to be slaughtering the Korban Pesach already. And we know that Moshe Rabbeinu tells them to get the Korban Pesach on the 10th of Nisan, four days before that. So obviously when he came to Par'o on this occasion... The groundwork for the Korban Pesach was already laid. It was just about giving a final ultimatum to Paro before the Makah of the Plague of the Firstborn took place and, and before the Jewish people actually did their Korban Pesach. That's the, only, that's the only thing. But all the groundwork had to be in place for it to have any meaning to begin with. And what did the Jewish people have to do? What were they bidden to do was to take the sheep which was a symbol of divinity in Egypt. It was a God of Egypt that they venerated, that they thought was holy. They considered it to be a taboo to eat. To slaughter or to eat sheep and to slaughter it and to take the blood and to wipe it on their doors and to very publicly roast it in a way that everyone would see what they were roasting and demonstrating a complete rejection of the idolatry of Egypt, the superstitions of Egypt, because of course, any Egyptian that you asked, well, what would happen if I took a sheep and I slaughtered it and I wiped the blood of the sheep on my door, would tell you that the most horrible things are gonna happen to you, the most horrible plagues and curses and bad luck is going to happen if you do such a thing, and yet they're doing it and saying that's what's going to save them. So in other words, the rejection of the superstitious and the magic and the idolatry, they had to have so much conviction in that, that they were willing to do something which was essentially would have been considered to be rebellion against Egypt, would have been considered essentially to be a rejection of everything that Egypt stood for, and the most offensive and upsetting uh, kind of sacrilege in Egypt, they had to do that in full view of everyone. And not only did they not have to be afraid either the, of the Egyptians tormenting them or of some bad luck coming upon them, they also had to be, uh, they, it wasn't enough to, uh, to not be afraid of the consequences of doing that, but they, had to also, they, they actually had to have the conviction that that was going to be uh, the road to their, to their redemption, that that was actually going to be what secured for them the... Uh, uh, the the, uh, yitziat mitrayim, the freedom from slavery in Egypt. So exactly the opposite of what, a, uh, of what anybody would have told them at that time. They had to proudly do it and stand behind it fully and not have any fear. And in fact, to realize that that was really service of God. Service of God meant recognizing that none of these ideas of Egypt had any uh, merit whatsoever. And, and, and that was what the Korban Pesach was. But unless they were willing to do that, there was no way they would be able to be redeemed. That shift had to take place first. And in fact, we know that according to the Midrash, that's actually in this coming week's parashat bishalach, that only a fifth, according to the Midrash, only a fifth of the Jewish people in Egypt actually made it out. Four-fifths resisted, four-fifths uh, were afraid. It doesn't tell us why. Maybe because they, were, they didn't fully believe in it. They weren't 100% sure that the superstitions weren't true. Maybe they were a little bit superstitious and they were concerned that slaughtering the sheep would uh, bring curses on, upon them. Maybe they were afraid of the Egyptians and thought that uh, the, you know, harm would come to them from the Egyptians if they violated the taboos of the society. Or maybe, they, uh, uh, maybe it could be that they wanted to stay in Egypt and they, they had an allegiance to Egypt and they sided with the Egyptians. We don't know the reason, but the idea was that it was no, the reason why the rabbis say that is it could be an exaggeration that, uh, you know, sometimes the rabbis exaggerate when it comes to numbers and they say, oh, it was a fifth of, uh, a fifth of the Jewish people didn't, uh, it, that, that came out and four fifths didn't come out. But it, it, I think what it means is that it was uncommonly courageous of them to be willing to do what they did. It wasn't something that any ordinary person would be able to do. And so it was a a tremendous act of bravery and demonstration of conviction on their part. And because of that conviction and because of that bravery, they were able to leave Egypt because they took action, because they were following God. They were ready to go. And Moshe Rabbeinu tells them to have their belts on and to have their staff and to be ready to run out. In other words, the idea is that you're following God already. So now when the freedom, when the opportunity uh, presents itself when the door opens. You're going to go out, and you're going to be following God. Not uh, you're not going to have to think about okay, now that I'm free, what should I do? Like they ask people, you know, now that they've been let out of prison, what are they going to do with their lives now? He, they didn't have to worry about that. They already were on the path of serving God. The question just was, how soon can they get out? And so the um, this is the I, I think the key principle that we, uh, that, that we see in the parasha is the, the idea of free choice. And it's kind of ironic because the idea that free choice in a way is taken away from par'o, par'o is denied free choice or his free choice is augmented because his fear is taken away and so he in a way becomes a puppet of God and on the, and on the other hand, we have the Jewish people where their free choice and their willingness to commit to God is actually the centerpiece and the essence of their redemption. And that is a remarkable thing, that sort of contrast. Paro on one hand, be, becoming a slave to um, either to his, uh, you know not having the ability to will independently or not having the natural deterrent of fear to act intelligently. And the Jewish people on the other hand, who, again, who, are, who overcome their fears also, and but who exercise their free choice in doing what is right against the grain, and that is what secures for them uh, redemption. And in fact, at the end of the parasha, it gives us many mitzvot that not only relate to Pesach, but even in the future, the wearing of tefillin and the study of Torah. That the all of these things, all of these mitzvot demonstrate the free. Um, exercise of will of the Jewish people as they embrace their identity as servants of God, and um, as we're going to see in the coming weeks, parasha, the fact that they leave in such haste and that they don't even bake bread on the way out of Egypt is a, again an indication of the speed with which they wanted to serve God. They wanted to. They wanted the Hashem wanted them to leave quickly from Egypt. They didn't want them to leave slowly because the goal was that, not that they should be <coughs> free and self-indulgent, but that they should have the freedom to serve God with all of their energy. And in fact, when, when Moshe Rabbeinu speaks to the elders about the mitzvah of Korban Pesach, he says, pull and take for yourselves sheep to make the Pesach. And what do the rabbis say? Mishchu, pull your hands away from idolatry, and take for yourselves the sheep of the mitzvah. In other words, they had to redirect their energy uh, that that was what it was about not about everyone is a slave to something you could be a slave to your own desires you could be a slave to fashion you could be a slave to the opinions of other people you could be a slave to your work you could be a slave to uh, to um, material you know to uh, to the desire for money you could be a slave to many a thing but everybody serves something everybody is a servant of of some kind of value or ideal. The question just is, what kind of servant will you be? Or a servant to what kind of thing will you be? Are you going to be a servant to something that deadens you and robs you of a value? Or are you going to be a servant to Hashem, which ennobles you and raises you up? Because being a servant of God means living in the way that God wills that a person should live, that's best for a person to live. And therefore that raises you up. Whereas anything else that we take as a master over ourselves always drags us down. That's the lesson really of Parashat Bo. And that's the lesson of, at the end of the parasha, the tefillin, that we wear ornaments. We wear as jewelry the word of God. It's a type of a royal, uh, to have a crown of tefillin and to have on our arms the uh, the sign of the tefillin, that the word of God is, is the ornament that we use to decorate ourselves. It's a type of a demonstration that we are, uh, you know, that we've achieved a, a, higher, level of, a higher level of existence from uh, having embraced the service of God. And so, Bezrat Hashem, next week, we will discuss the very complex and detailed parasha of Bishalach and why and how that follows this week's parasha. But for now, have everyone have a, a good night and don't forget it's 2 bishvat on thursday special day as well